You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 177, The Republic of Vermont. In March 1778, the Vermont legislature was elected and met for the first time. This was significant because no one, not even the other 13 states, recognized Vermont as an independent state. I mentioned almost in passing back in episode 131 that Vermont had declared its own independence in January of 1777. The Continental Congress, and just about everyone else outside of Vermont, pretty much ignored this declaration. The main reason for ignoring it was that it was divisive. The Continental Congress was doing everything it could to keep the 13 states united. It did not want to highlight a matter of local contention between the states. To explain why, perhaps a little background would be helpful. In the colonial era, the exact territorial borders of many colonies were ill-defined and sometimes contradictory. New York thought its eastern border was the Connecticut River. This was based on the original land grant to the Duke of York from the King in 1664. New Hampshire believed that its western border went all the way to Lake Champlain and was roughly as far west as the western border of Massachusetts. This was based on a decree by King George II in 1740. Therefore, the area between Lake Champlain and the Connecticut River was in dispute by both colonies. Of course, none of this really mattered until any colonists began to settle in the territory. In the 17th century, the area was also claimed by France as part of Quebec. The French established Fort St. Anne in the region to help secure their claim. The first British settlers in 1724 came to the territory from Connecticut. This disputed inland territory mostly remained the home of Native Americans until after the French and Indian War. Then, at the end of that war, in 1763, there were an estimated 300 colonists living in the region. Governor Benning Wentworth of New Hampshire began selling land grants to colonists shortly after King George II's decree of 1740. Land speculators purchased land, but did not really settle the area until after the French and Indian War. In the 1760s, settlement really began in earnest as thousands of New England colonists moved into the area, holding those New Hampshire land grants that they had purchased from the governor. This greatly concerned New York, which still believed that it controlled the area and had a number of wealthy and influential landowners with New York claims to that exact same land. In 1764, New York got a ruling from the King's Privy Council in London that its border was, in fact, the Connecticut River 
and that all the disputed territory belonged to New York. In making this claim, the New York officials downplayed the fact that New Hampshire had already settled much of the land. Further, the Privy Council gave New York jurisdiction over the territory, but did not say that the private property owners holding land there as a result of New Hampshire land grants were null and void. The Privy Council simply focused on establishing clear jurisdiction going forward. New York, however, took the ruling to mean that the Privy Council confirmed that they had always controlled the region and that New Hampshire land grants were in fact null and void. With their newly affirmed claims from the Privy Council, New York began selling more land to speculators and evicting settlers with New Hampshire grants as squatters. In 1767, the Privy Council issued another ruling saying that no, it had not nullified all the New Hampshire grants and that New York could just not resell people's farms to others. Despite this, New York continued to try to enforce its land claims and ignored those of New Hampshire. It attempted to evict settlers and settle new communities holding New York claims. The settlers with New Hampshire grants resisted, giving rise to the Green Mountain Boys, and I discussed this in more detail way back in episode 38. After the outbreak of war in 1775, the New Hampshire grant holders in the disputed land tended to flock to the Patriot side and seized Fort Ticonderoga under Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold. New York claimants tended to be loyalists. Thus, the fight over the land became part of the Revolutionary War. The Patriots, in January 1777, met in the village of Westminster to declare that the disputed territory was neither part of New Hampshire nor New York, but in fact was its own new territory known as the State of New Connecticut. The territory would respect New Hampshire land grant claims, but going forward would be entirely independent of either state. Now, as I said, no one paid much attention at the time since the war with Britain was the focus for everyone. Later that same year, on June 2nd, delegates met again in Westminster. They changed the name from New Connecticut to Vermont, using a derivation for the French words for Green Mountain. They then agreed to meet again on July 4th. On that first anniversary of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, the delegates agreed to draft a constitution, which they adopted four days later, on July 8, 1777. The independence movement was a group project, with no one person to be credited as the father of Vermont. However, I do want to highlight a couple of key figures in Vermont's birth. One was a man who did not even live in the area. Dr. Thomas Young was born in New York. He was the son of Irish immigrants. He studied medicine and began a career as a physician. In some ways, he was a radical product of his era. He was known for his deism, which rejects much of the traditional religions of the day in favor of rationalism. He was also a longtime proponent of land justice. One of his big issues had to do with the way elites controlled the masses through their control of land. His Irish roots probably had a lot to do with that. British law controlled who could or could not own land in Ireland, ensuring that the Protestant elite held economic power over their Catholic tenant farmers. 
Young saw how a similar pattern was emerging in the disputed lands that became Vermont when the New York colonial government tried to prevent people from settling the new lands. He was friends with Ethan Allen, and the two men even collaborated on a book about reason. In 1764, Young wrote a pamphlet called Reflections on the Disputes Between New York, New Hampshire, and Colonel John Henry Lydius. This book attacked New York's policies on the ownership of the disputed lands. Now, I'm not sure if it was directly because of this publication, but shortly after this, Young left New York for Boston. There, he was a member of the Sons of Liberty and a leading member of the Radical Committee of Correspondence. He became good friends with Samuel Adams and was an early radical leader of the Patriot cause. Many believe Young was a key organizer of the Boston Tea Party. Like many leaders, he created an alibi for himself during the actual destruction of the tea. At the time, he was giving a lecture at the Old South Meeting House on the bad health effects of drinking tea. It was important for known radical leaders to have alibis during the actual destruction of the tea so that officials would not try to prosecute them for participation in that crime. Even so, as tensions grew in Boston following the Tea Party, threats on radical leaders also grew. A few months later, in 1774, Young was attacked on the street, allegedly by British soldiers, and left for dead. He survived, however, and shortly afterward fled to Rhode Island and eventually settled in Philadelphia. Although he only arrived in Philadelphia in 1775, Young involved himself immediately in the radical politics of the city. He participated in the efforts that year to throw out the old colonial legislature and replace it with a new one, along with a radical new state constitution. In April of 1777, Young wrote an open letter addressed to, quote, the inhabitants of Vermont, which is generally credited with inspiring the Patriot Committee to change the name of their state from New Connecticut to Vermont. The letter also encouraged them to draw heavily on the radical Pennsylvania Constitution when creating their own. He enclosed a copy of Pennsylvania's Constitution with his letter. Now, the Vermont Constitution was very much caught up in the Patriot ideology of the day. It was one of the most radical of its time, and much of it was taken from the radical Pennsylvania Constitution, but in some ways it was even more radical. It borrowed from the Declaration of Independence, stating, quote, that all men are born equally free and independent, and have certain natural, inherent, and unalienable rights, amongst which are enjoying and defending life and liberty acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. The Vermont Constitution banned slavery outright. It granted the right to vote with no property requirements. A man who was 21 or older could vote if he lived in the state for one year and took an oath to vote according to his conscience. It even set up a system of public schools, nearly unheard of in the 18th century. It followed the unique Pennsylvania model of creating a legislature with only one house. It also dispersed executive power to a governor and council. Having drafted the Constitution in July 1777, the whole thing got tabled as attention turned to the invading British army led by John Burgoyne. 
Then, in December, the committee finally got things back on track and announced that elections under the new Constitution would take place on the first Tuesday in March 1778. The problem was that neither New York, New Hampshire, Britain, nor the Continental Congress recognized Vermont's Declaration of Independence nor its Constitution. On January 20, 1777, less than a week after the state declared itself independent, the president of the New York Convention warned the Continental Congress that it would not accept the dismemberment of its state. Any attempt to recognize Vermont would result in New York leaving the Continental Congress and would end New York's support for that Congress. New York already had a pretty sizable Loyalist population, and this action could very well push New York back into the Loyalist camp and have them throw their support behind the British Army in Canada. The last thing Congress wanted was to create that kind of internal dissension while they were in the middle of a war with Britain. As a result, everyone outside of Vermont refused to recognize Vermont. Congress dismissed the petition for recognition in June 1777 and made clear that they were not in any way favor of a new independent state of Vermont. Around this same time, the Vermont delegates were writing their constitution. Also, General Burgoyne's army was capturing Fort Ticonderoga and marching his soldiers along what Vermonters claim was their western border. Now, as I said, they continued to press on with the creation of their new government despite the imminent military threat from invading armies. While combating the British, the other states simply ignored the new Vermont government. New Hampshire General John Stark formed his militia army and marched through Vermont to fight the Battle of Bennington on the authority of the New Hampshire legislature. Many in Vermont joined this fight as local militia, but not under any color of the Vermont legislature. Whatever claims politicians were making in Westminster were largely ignored as the war swept through the land. Even so, Vermont continued its efforts to establish self-government. Based on the 1777 Constitution, the people held elections and seated their first legislature in March 1778. They elected Thomas Chittenden as their first governor. Thomas Chittenden was born in Salisbury, Connecticut. He lived most of his life there, serving as a Justice of the Peace, a member of the Colonial Assembly, and a colonel in the Colonial Militia. He moved to what would become Vermont in 1774 at the age of 44. By this time, his children were already grown to adulthood. Even so, Chittenden purchased property from the owner of a New Hampshire land grant and started a new life in Vermont with many of his adult children. He and a friend purchased a large tract of land to be settled by their families. They moved to the wilderness area along the Onion River, today called the Winooski River, where they set about building a house and clearing the land. Chittend established himself as a community leader. Now, when the revolution began, Chittenden traveled to Philadelphia to see what Congress would do about protecting them from attack. Congress basically told him he was on his own. Chittenden was forced to abandon his farm and move his family further south, where they would be less vulnerable to attack. There, Chittenden became president of the Bennington Committee of Safety, organizing for the Patriot cause. In September 1776, Chittenden met with other leaders at Dorset to discuss the idea of Vermont independence. 
This led to the January Declaration and the June Constitution. Chittenden was a leading political advocate and became the state's first governor in March 1778. He would prove highly popular and would be re-elected to consecutive one-year terms for more than a decade. After a short break, he would serve as governor for a few more years after Vermont joined the Union. I also can't complete an episode about the founding of Vermont without at least mentioning Ira Allen, sometimes called the founder of Vermont. Ira Allen was the younger brother of Ethan Allen. He joined his brother in the New Hampshire Grants in 1770 and fought with the Green Mountain Boys. He was one of the men who participated in the attack on Fort Ticonderoga in 1775, and he also participated in the Siege of Quebec. After the British took back Canada in the spring of 1776, Allen returned to his home and got more directly involved in the Vermont independence movement. He attended the conventions and became an ally of Thomas Chittenden, strongly opposing any further political affiliation with New York. He served as secretary of the Committee of Safety, which served as the de facto government until implementation of the Constitution. Allen became one of the leading advocates for Vermont independence. So when in May 1776, the Continental Congress advocated for states to form their own governments because royal governments had failed to protect the interests of the people, Allen used that same logic to argue that New York had failed to protect the interests of the people of the New Hampshire grants. Therefore, those people were entitled to set up a new government that would protect those interests. Although Congress never intended for Vermont to set up its own government, Allen effectively used Congress's resolutions to convince his neighbors that Congress would be supportive of this effort at self-government. It helped to convince people to support the movement overall. Of course, the fact that New York's new constitution reaffirmed its land claims in Vermont and the application of quit-rents on those living there also affirmed the desire of many to declare independence from New York. With Burgoyne's invasion, Allen worked to coordinate defenses, mostly with New Hampshire and General Stark. He did what he could to assist with men and supplies, even though his position was given no formal recognition by other state leaders. Following the first state election of 1778, Allen served as Vermont state treasurer. The state got most of its revenue by seizing the property of loyalists and then selling it at auction. Allen would continue to serve Vermont in a variety of ways in following years, efforts that will perhaps be the topic of future episodes. Vermont officials fighting for their recognition as an independent republic would go on for years. It was not just New York that opposed this. In the summer of 1778, 16 towns on the eastern side of the Connecticut River in New Hampshire voted to secede from New Hampshire and join the Republic of Vermont. The argument that the towns used was that the Continental Congress's Declaration of Independence, removing British rule, reverted everything to a state of nature. It was, therefore, the right of the people to choose their own government and form their own allegiances. Borders under the colonial era were not binding, so they were not bound to New Hampshire based on this order that was drawn by a privy council in London years earlier. They could choose to be part of whatever government they wanted. This caused the governor of New Hampshire to go apoplectic and write a letter to Vermont Governor Chittenden 
to disavow this action. Chittenden discussed the matter in council and sent Ethan Allen to Philadelphia to gauge the opinion of the Patriot leadership. Allen returned to say that if Vermont provoked a fight with New Hampshire by trying to claim lands east of the Connecticut River, that the other states would likely band together and annihilate the new Vermont Republic instead of just ignoring it. After several more months of debate, Vermont eventually decided to reject the request of the towns on the east bank of the Connecticut to join them. It formally accepted that the Connecticut River was the state's eastern border and that it would make no claims on other lands outside of that area. Those towns who voted to join Vermont would remain part of New Hampshire. None of this ended the claims from New York, New Hampshire, and even Massachusetts that Vermont was part of their state. But it did return to the tense standoff where Vermont was able to govern itself and everybody else simply refused to recognize it. So the Republic of Vermont was born and began to govern itself, mostly based on its ability to defend itself from its neighbors and everyone's unwillingness to have this political fight in the middle of the war with Britain. The controversy over Vermont's existence as an independent state would continue for many more years. Vermont would never get to seat a delegation at the Continental Congress or even at the Constitutional Convention. It would only be several years after the adoption of the Constitution that Vermont would finally receive recognition as an independent state. But that was well into the future. Next week, we're going to return to occupied Philadelphia, where British raids into southern New Jersey lead to the Hancock Bridge Massacre. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My continued thanks to Trey Nance and George Davis for their continued support at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon, as well as all of my other supporters on Patreon. Also thanks to Pete Waddell, Paul Kallenberger, Richard Huber, Anna Carr, and Ryan Johnson for their one-time contributions via PayPal. I am so grateful for everyone who can support the costs of this podcast as it grows. I really want to keep it free for those who cannot afford to provide financial support, so your generosity makes that possible. Also, this week I've been continuing to update my bookshop.org book lists 
I have the books for 1775 done and am organizing my books for the 1776 episodes. As a reminder, bookshop.org is a great way to support independent bookstores and authors while still having the convenience of online shopping. Finally, I am beginning to build a mailing list for this podcast, which I want to use to keep everyone up to date on other interesting events and upcoming episodes. I'm running two raffles actually right now for anyone who signs up for my mailing list. And if you go to my website or the bottom of the current blog episode, you can get more details on how to sign up and how to enter the raffles. This week, I talked about the founding of Vermont. Of course, Vermont would go on to become the 14th state long after ratification of the Constitution by the original 13. However, this path was far from obvious at the time in 1777 and 78. All sorts of factions outside of Vermont wanted to ignore this issue since it was, as I said, potentially so divisive. The issue of Vermont independence had the potential to destroy the Union before it was even fully established. So everyone thought, let's bury our heads in the sand and deal with this at a later time. But had they not done so, just imagine what would have happened if popular opinion in New York turned in favor of Britain in order to retain that state's control of Vermont. It would have divided the Union at a critical time, and if New York pulled out, there would have been no contiguous Union of states. There were, of course, a great many other land disputes between the states, and this really could have become a wedge issue that broke apart the Union forever. So, in this case, procrastination was exactly the right strategy. Congress simply ignored Vermont's claims for independence and kept the 13 states focused on defeating Britain and gaining their own independence. When the United States Congress finally did turn its attention to this matter in the 1790s, it was forced to do so because a frustrated Vermont was seriously considering overtures by the British in Canada to make Vermont an independent state within Canada. And that will probably be a topic of a future episode if I get that far in this whole process. A state border disputes could have become the issue that destroyed the Union and resulted in war between the states. It is a testament to the leadership of the time that they successfully navigated these issues and eventually convinced state leaders to compromise on these land issues rather than go to war. The Union of States had a very real and tangible value to the survival of the individual states and they had to make hard political choices in favor of maintaining that union. Another big issue that Vermont raised that the other states were ignoring was that of slavery. Again, Congress ignored the divisive issue of slavery in favor of keeping the union together. Vermont was the only state to completely outlaw slavery during the war. Today, it's popular to sneer at the founders for being a bunch of slave owners who refused to end slavery. The truth is, there was not a significant anti-slavery movement before the war. Even the Quakers were conflicted on the idea of abolition a generation earlier. People often forget just how revolutionary the idea of all men created equal really was. The idea that nobles and commoners had no distinctions at birth was just not accepted in the Western world at this time. Now, the founders saw that slavery was incompatible with the ideas they espoused. 
but they also saw that trying to change that in the middle of a struggle for survival would only result in everything going back to British control. They were still trying to establish the idea that free men were equal to that of nobles, so they weren't really focused on slaves being equal to that of freemen. They saw that eventually this would have to change to be consistent with their ideals, but the pace of change had to be slow or it was not going to move forward at all, and in fact would probably move backwards. So while a new state like Vermont could end slavery, older states that had a legacy of slavery would have to find a way to end that institution that did not destroy the wealth of the most powerful people in those states. Now, after the war, the northern states all abolished slavery, some taking a generation or two to fully phase it out. Of course, as we know, the southern states ended up doubling down on slavery and had to be dragged kicking and screaming out of the institution a few generations later. But the important thing to remember is that it was the ideals of the revolution that set the wheels in motion for abolition a few generations later. Vermont's constitution was a good indicator of where things were headed. Not just with slavery, Vermont was also a leader in universal male voting, something else that also gets sneered at today for being insufficient, but which was a leap forward ahead at the time. Its guarantee of free public education was also another leap forward that other states would take decades to follow. My book recommendation this week is The Reluctant Republic, Vermont, 1724-1791 by Frederick Vandewater. The book available today is actually a reprint of the original, which was first published way back in 1941. You can also actually get the original as a free download ebook on archive.org. Usually for my book recommendation, I like to have something a little more current, but this is unfortunately an area that has not been a topic of coverage in recent years. Vandewater's book covers the first European settlements in Vermont through the establishment of statehood, and despite its age, it gives a good comprehensive look at the topic. Vandewater was primarily known as a novelist, but he's written several good local histories as well. My online recommendation this week is a short biography of Thomas Young, who is a fascinating, if forgotten, founder in his own right. And again, there's not much out there about Young. In fact, most of you will probably get confused with Thomas Young of England, who was a scientist in the early 19th century. These men are not related in any way. The biography that I found of Thomas Young of the Revolution is a short presentation about Young found in Volume 11 of the Publications of the Massachusetts Colonial Society, published in 1910. And of course, this is available on archive.org as an ebook. One of a few reasons that Young is probably overlooked is that his views on land ownership are a forerunner of many of the same criticisms levied by Marxists in the 19th and early 20th century. Now, I will note that appreciating the injustice of some land distribution does not inevitably lead to a Marxist solution. So I wouldn't call Young a proto-Marxist or anything like that. It is interesting to note, though, that the problems caused by unfair land distribution has been the topic of many revolutions since long before Karl Marx was born and afterwards as well. 
Thomas Young's views were radical for his time and might even be considered radical today. But I think it's worth understanding what his criticisms were and how elite powers have used land ownership to keep the masses under control. You can find volume 11 of the publications of the Massachusetts Colonial Society on archive.org, as I said, but it's really a tedious process because archive.org does not make finding a specific volume in a multi-volume set very easy. So, of course, as I always do for my online recommendations, I've provided a direct link at the bottom of the blog entry for this episode. And you can find that at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.